Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 18 of the Cookie Chronicles podcast. That's right. We are already 18 episodes into this show. On today's episode, I was joined by East Village Times writer and podcaster and college basketball expert Dominic Stern. Um, he jumped on the pod to talk about really the state of college basketball right now. And with the NCAA tourney just in two weeks, um, I decided to bring him onto the podcast to teach me a thing or two about college basketball since I've had trouble watching games and really breaking down tape um, in the collegiate game so far this season. And hopefully he'll teach you guys a thing or two um, through his expertise. So uh, we talked about some college basketball, and we also dove into the San Diego Padres uh, and his beloved Padres and where they are at right now, which is right now probably being the second best team in Major League Baseball. That's right. Those San Diego Padres are the second best team in Major League Baseball. It was a really fun and in-depth conversation I had with Dominic, so I just hope you guys really all enjoy listening to it as well. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dominic. All right, hopping now onto the podcast is uh, the one and only Dominic Stern. Uh, thanks so much for hopping on, man. Yeah, the one and only is a new uh, title before my name. So thank you for having me on. I look forward to talking about some college basketball and, uh, of course, my Padres. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess just first before we get to the Padres stuff, and I really wanted to have you on at least at least once to talk about the Padres. I'm seeing your Padres content all the time on my Twitter feed. Um, I, I do want to touch on and, and talk about college basketball because – it's a subject that we've talked about a lot of things, different things on this podcast, but it's something we haven't quite touched on yet. And personally, I've had trouble watching the games because not only college basketball without fans, that's a, that's a really tough experience. That's part of it. But also I, I just personally, I also cover the Arizona Coyotes for Cronkite news. So that take, takes up a lot of even some of the NBA stuff I'm watching as well. And that's all NBA and the pro I'm a, more of a pro guy than a college guy, but so that's kind of like taking over a lot of my time. And, and I've really had trouble trying to find and find like college basketball, like sneaking college basketball in terms of watching or even doing like general research really until this week. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of talking to talking about the bracket a little bit, breaking things down. Um, but to sort of organize this, conversation uh from the college basketball aspect i did i asked you to compile four teams in like eight, four teams for four different categories so top four teams in the country four underrated teams four overrated teams and your last four teams into the tournament at the moment so uh just to start um who are your four team four top four teams at the moment because i think three are pretty much locked locked in and then the fourth one is it a bit? I feel like it's a bit debate, especially after yesterday. Yeah, like you mentioned, this is a very clear top three. It's been Baylor and Gonzaga all year. I personally think Baylor's better than Gonzaga. I know I'm generally in the minority in thinking that, but you really can't go wrong with either of those two teams. They're, I think, coming into at least the past two weeks, they're very clearly at the top. And Michigan has been the third team for a very long time but they have certainly separated themselves from the field and they're really putting themselves in that category with Baylor and Gonzaga. They're four and since coming off their three week COVID pause, because there's some, one of the weird strains of COVID-19 was found within the athletic department. So the, the state health department of Michigan shut down all Michigan athletics for mm -hmm. three weeks and the Michigan basketball program 
it's been very well documented this year that teams coming off of COVID pauses, not just pauses where like they're facing a team and then like that team can't play the game. And so then they can still practice, but Michigan wasn't able to practice for two and a half weeks, had a couple of days of practice and they got thrown into the ring of playing the most experienced team in the country on the road in Wisconsin. And they were down 10 and a half. And everyone's like, Oh boy, here, here could come the fall of Michigan, but no, they stormed back in the second half. They beat them. They beat Rutgers. They beat Ohio state last weekend. And then they absolutely crushed Iowa last night. So they've really put themselves in that category. They've always been the third best team in the country, at least for a long time, but they've really put themselves from tier one B in a tier one A and the fourth team, like you mentioned, really tough to decide because I, I have my top 25 and after the top three, it was Ohio state, Illinois, Iowa, Alabama, Houston, Oklahoma to round out the top nine. And all those teams except for Houston have lost this week. So it's like, where do I even go from here? Just because there's the clear top three. And then after that, it's just kind of a free for all. And for me, I, I decided to go with Illinois at four just because it's a team that I, I loved coming into the season and they they strung together a ton of wins. I could have easily gone with Ohio State, but they've lost twice in the past week. And Michigan State has been a team that's been on a tear lately. They beat both Illinois and Ohio State this week. So I mean like I could have put them in here, but that would have been just so wrong because they've lost to so many bad teams this year. Like the fourth team was really tough. Iowa obviously lost to Michigan. Alabama lost to Arkansas. Oklahoma lost to Kansas State, who sucks, and that was certainly not a good look for them. But they had compiled so many fantastic wins throughout the year that it's hard to knock them off too much. But I, I decided to go with Illinois at four. But you could really not go wrong with Ohio State, Alabama, Iowa, or even Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm certainly not quite the expert as you are, but in the very beginning of the college basketball season when – Illinois, I think they had that. I, I think I watched like one or two of their opening games, and I was just kind of blown away by how deep their roster is and how many different scoring options that even a guy like Andre Curbelo, who isn't even like a top two or three player on that team, and I'm like, oh, this gets this guy's a really crafty point guard who kind of who understands pick and roll really well, has a has a good has a good sense of it, has has a nice has a nice shot, and just plays at sort of a pace and an understanding that I really enjoy. And he is an Io Dasum new. He isn't Kofi Co- Co- Coburn. I, I keep on wanting to say Cockburn. Well, um, it's pronounced Coburn, but it is spelled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I kind of get myself tripped up on that name a little bit. But yeah, and I, I just, I love their depth. I think they, they seem like a pretty well-coached team. And, and they seem, and they haven't been quite as amazing. I wouldn't say they've been below expectation this year, but it seems to me that they they did have that kind of a, a little bit of a lull during the middle of the season. I think that's mostly because of the conference, if I'm not mistaken. The Big Ten's just been incredible this season. But, yeah, like that Illinois team would have been my pick as well just because they have those two stars um, to go along with a pretty deep roster. They're well coached. They're a veteran team. They've been together. Um, and I don't know, I look at the other options in this list and no one really jumps out to me. I mean, Alabama's been struggling recently. Oklahoma, as you said, lost to Kansas state, Ohio state has lost two straight. Um, we're not sure about Villanova's defense. Uh, Iowa just got killed. Like there's not a ton of good options for that fourth spot. And I think they're kind of the natural fit there. 
Right. And the emergence of Trent Frazier this year, he'd been kind of a role player for Illinois the past couple of years. He's finally a senior. He's averaging 10 points per game. He's been fantastic. Like you mentioned, Andre Corbello, he's kind of like the sidekick to Ayo DeSumo because he's a freshman point guard and he's really wild. Like the way he facilitates the offense is incredible for a freshman. He's going to be a really fun player going forward. Very turnover prone on the year. He's averaging 2.6 turnovers per game. When you consider the fact that he's the backup point guard, that's not an ideal situation, but that's just the way that he plays naturally. And Georgie Bashanashai Stilly, I think I pronounced that right. I don't know. There's like 15. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's all over the place. He's been kind of a disappointment. He was one of their best offensive weapons last year. This hasn't been that guy this year, but I would assume and Kofi Coburn have like cemented themselves as one of the best front court, back court duos in the country that he just hasn't been needed as much, especially filling in the minutes for, for Coburn and Coburn stayed out of foul trouble more as of late. And that's, that was his biggest problem his freshman year mm. and why they weren't winning as much this year. Uh, they're a really fun team to watch. Ayo Desumu is going to be a first team all American and he had a not so great game against Michigan state that kind of took him out of, the national player of the year race, but so did Luca Garza, who I, I think Luca Garza is probably going to win it. I would vote Jared Butler, but there, there's not a lot of players who have been so dominant on offense. Like Luca Garza has. Seems like you're a huge Baylor guy in terms of their ceiling as a team. Um, right. And just how kind of dominant they've been all season in, in an excellent conference in the big 12. So it seems like you're just like head over heels for this team. And I mean, if you watch that Baylor Illinois game, like Baylor d- shut them down, especially in the, the, at the start of that second half. And they just yeah. really like choked the life out of them. Even though that was very early in the season, you could tell that that team was playing at a level that you rarely see at the, at the, at the collegiate level, just in terms of their chemistry together, not, not even not offensively, which is what you usually see with like a Gonzaga or whatnot, but defensively the communication they had on that side of the ball and how athletic they were on the perimeter and how big, how kind of big they were on the perimeter as well. Yeah. That team might have one of the best backcourts in NCAA history. Like they, they are so loaded. They have four guards who would start anywhere else in the country and two of them have to come off the bench. They're, they're just such a fun team to watch. Uh, if, if they're going to get beat anywhere, it's going to be down low, but Mark vital is a really strong defender and he's just a presence down low. And they, uh, they got a player who transferred from UNLV last year. His name is Jonathan Shamwa Chachua. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's a fun name to say, and just like watching him run down the court. It's such a big, he's such a big guy. They're a really fun team to watch. And like I said, I think they're better than Gonzaga. Obviously, it's no knock on Gonzaga. They're really good. But I think the way that Baylor's mowed through the Big 12 leading up to their COVID pause, which was almost three weeks as well. Then, of course, they did not look good against Iowa State, who's even worse than Kansas State. They're, they're a really good team. It's can they get over that Baylor hump that Baylor just has not been able to get over because Scott Drew's teams have never done well in the tournament. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I feel like they have too much talent to not at least get to the Elite Eight. And I, I know Definitely. that sounds like a like a strong take, but it just seems like we have at least – we have two teams this year who are just heads and shoulders better than everybody else. And usually – I mean, we've seen plenty of upsets before, but usually those are teams that are very good and could p- potentially be on that next level, usually end up end up fall, falling. Like, usually there's, like, two-seed teams, like – 
that Duke that that Duke team that one year, that Michigan State team that 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 other year where I think everyone had them going to at least the lead eight. <laughs> I, I I had them losing in the final that year, so that was not fun. But so did everyone else. So it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, and everyone kind of loved the at least the potential of that team, and they they showed a lot during the season. But um, the Middle Tennessee State just kind of kicked them out in the first round. Or, or that, I mean, of course, the famous Virginia team, the first ever one seed to lose in the first round. But, like, those, like, those teams weren't quite as dominant as this one, as either Gonzaga or Baylor. I, I think at least with Gonzaga, when I watch this team, I, I think that out of all the teams, out of all the basketball teams in the country, that includes the NBA, they are, to me, the most entertaining to watch. Just in terms of their connectivity on the court, the ball movement, the defense, all of it, it's, it's just beautiful basketball to watch. And I, I, I get a big smile on my face every, every single time I watch them play because it's just, it's really, it's really unbelievable. And, they're, and their roster depth is so deep. And I love Suggs, especially as an NBA prospect moving forward. I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with Gonzaga, to be honest. Yeah, they're a really fun team to watch. And even they struggled with Santa Clara on Thursday. Like it, Thursday, this week has just been nuts. I mean, it's what you kind of come to expect with college basketball, but yeah, like you mentioned, they they're really good. Their offense has now moved to number one in Ken Palm, and their defense is top ten as well. They're they're just such a fun team to watch, and they were one of the few teams in the nation that I could like name all five starters at the beginning of the season. Obviously, the more and more I watch every game, that there's more teams on that list, but they're so fun to watch. And part of the reason they're fun to watch is because they're fifth in adjusted tempo. According to Kempom, they, they just move down the court. They just score like none other. And anytime Drew Timmy draws the end one, he just does his mustache thing. It's they're 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 so fun to watch. I I mean I enjoy they they got guys like Timmy who's really skilled. I think Kispert is an underrated guy who I think could f- f- certainly find a like a, a like a really nice quality role player role in the league. Um, I think I like I like and Nem, the fact that Nemhard's like their backup, kind of their backup point guard ish. It's, it's is, stupid. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's disgusting because he's better than almost every other point guard in, in the country, and there he is, like the backup, the Jalen Suggs. It's it's a little, it, it it's it's incredible. Um, yeah. So those those are pretty much the top four teams. Um, and. I mean, I guess when you put an Illinois into that fourth spot, it isn't too, too complicated, but you do have to think a little bit about that fourth spot. And I guess just to add on your Michigan point a little, just quickly here, um, it, it's surprising how how skilled they are. I, I didn't expect them to just look as, be quite as skilled and poised as they are this season. And, and heading into the season, a lot of people were like, oh, this is a bit of a transition year for Michigan. Um, they missed out on Josh Christopher, like, they missed out on a couple other signings and people were going heading into the season being like, Oh, they're probably going to make the tournament, but nothing too, too special. I don't, I don't think they were even ranked to start the season and no. here they are. So it's incredible. And then Juwan Howard, heck of a coach. Um, yeah. He still has yet to coach a game in the tournament. So that'll be an interesting test, but they've been so incredible. And the main storylines going in with the, the lost recruits, and then them losing Xavier Simpson, who had been their point guard for the past four years, mm. and John Teske, their really dominant center. And obviously, this the story's been Hunter Dickinson and how good he's been, how much Isaiah Livers has stepped up. They they're just such an incredible team to watch. They have experienced guys and talented freshmen with a very good head coach. They're a tournament team to just watch out for. Mm. 
That's for sure. Um, so those are pretty much the top four teams. Uh, so who are your next four in terms of four teams you might think that are a little overrated in, in, in around college basketball right now? Overrated. I think the first team you got to mention is Virginia. They are technically still the reigning national champs. And they were, it looked like they were trending in a very solid direction. They were ranked number seventh and you know, they've really picked on the bad teams, the ACC. And then last week on Monday, they ran into Florida State and Florida State absolutely dominated them 81 to 60. And everyone's like, oh, well, you know, this was a really good performance by Florida State team, a Florida State team that's ceiling is really high. They're a team that could certainly meet with those three teams in the final four. And they played Duke, who had been a really good team as of late, but they've had so many question marks down the stretch, lost that game. And then the final capper was them losing at home this week to NC State, who has just been not very good this year. And Virginia, they're, they're known for their defense. Uh, Tony Bennett team, that, that's been the strength of the program for so long. But their defense just hasn't been the same this year. It ranks 30th in Ken Palm this year. It just hasn't been as good. And they're the slowest team in the country, according to Tempo. So they're, they're never going to allow a lot of points, but compared to where they've been in years prior, it's just not the same. It's still a really good defense, don't get me wrong, but it's not the like elite defense that we're used to at Virginia. And their offense, while it's a better offense than prior offenses in UVA recent history, it's not as good as the, the tournament champion UVA offense. It just hasn't had that dependable score as of late. Jay Huff's an incredible player and Hauser is an incredible shooter, but they just don't have that go-to score that really helps them out. And because of that, they're trending in the wrong direction. And if they don't figure it out fast, they could be picked off in the first round of March Madness. Yeah. I mean, if their defense isn't top five, then they can't really get away with their offense in terms of being like a real contender for the tournament. Because like you said, they don't really have that go-to score. And some years, the years where they've had that guy, it's it's been great. And, you know, it, it, then they're incredibly hard to stop because you can't answer them on the other end. But I don't, I don't know. I just know when you look out on that team, you're like, let's get put the ball in his hands in the last few minutes and have him get have him make a play, you know. And it's it, it that's been a recurring Virginia problem when it comes to their teams in the past where they haven't been necessarily spectacular. Uh, what's your next team? I'm going to go with Missouri. They're a team that is somehow still ranked. They caught some really good non-conference wins with Illinois, who is, like I mentioned, put them in my top four. And Oregon, who I'll touch on in a little bit in a different category. And that really cemented them early on as a top team. And they're ranked number 10 two weeks ago because they beat Alabama at home, even though they blew like a 15-point lead because I don't think they're very good. And they have been terrible ever since. And it's a, I'm amazed that they're still ranked. They rank 50th in Ken Palm, yet people were still putting them in the top 25. I haven't put them in my top 25 the last two weeks. And even when they were ranked number 10, I had them at 23. So it's been pretty consistent that I have not been on this team. They lost by 20 to Ole Miss, who is a solid team, but you, shouldn't, you certainly shouldn't be losing to them by 20. They lost at home to Arkansas, who's a really good team. Uh, I think they can make a pretty solid tournament run. Uh, they lost to Georgia, who is not a good team. And then they lost to Ole Miss again. They've lost to Auburn. They've lost to Mississippi State, who's not a good team. And they've lost to Tennessee by 20. And Tennessee's had their own problems of being very inconsistent. I feel like they're properly rated as like a top 25 team, but not anywhere else near that. 
But the thing about Missouri and why they still have like some believers is because they're also one of the most experienced teams in the country. Everyone they start is basically a junior or senior. Xavier Pinson is a very solid guard and they've been much better with Tillman uh, on the court. Some of their losses were without him. I, I'd have to recognize that without uh, criticizing them too much, but even with Tillman, I don't think they're that great of a team. And I think they're another team that's really trending in the wrong direction. They've lost four of their last five. Mm. How good, what does Tillman do well in the court? Because it seems like from all the research I'm doing, now we're getting to the point of the podcast where half the stuff is going to go over my head, but <laughs> like where, how, how does he affect their team in terms of winning? Because everything I've read so far really kind of points out of the fact that, you know, um, they're, two like th- those two losses uh the their last two losses have been without him and that was uh, like a big factor as to why well their offense is definitely the weakness of this team uh they're a much better defensive team but they they need to have that presence down low just to have teams honor them and they don't have anyone down low besides Tillman they have other guards to go along with Drew Smith and Xavier Pinson but all they have is Tillman and he, he gives them that presence on defense, especially and on offense, it makes you respect the paint, but without him, they're, they're really bad. Like they, they, they aren't a tournament team without him with him. They're like a seven, eight seed, but he, he's just, it's the presence of him. He also has a problem and this isn't like a knock on him, but he tends to miss dunks. I don't know why, but like there is a stretch over like three games where I think he missed like four or five dunks. Like he just, Brick hit, hit off the back rim and it would just go away. I don't think it's a problem, but it was just something that I noticed. Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> See, it's like the Jason Tatum problem when Jason Tatum's rookie year with the Celtics, he just kept on missing dunks. It was really weird. Um, yeah. So, what's your name? That's really interesting. You mentioned Missouri. Um, so, I, yeah. So, like, what are actually before I ask you what the next team is, are you more of a Ken Palm guy or are you a net guy? I'm more of a Kempom guy. Like I pay attention to the net because I think the net has like effects on like where teams are going to get seated, but I do have a Kempom subscription. Like, I mean, there are some teams that I, I'm higher on than he is. And there are some teams that I'm lower on than he is. I think where he has Missouri at 50 is a little too extreme. I think they're in like the 30 to like 40 range, not 50, but uh, I am more of a Kempom guy. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah. What's your next team then? Uh, this might shock some people. I think Iowa. Uh, Ooh. Okay. Cause listen, this team is an offensive juggernaut. Like there, there's no way around it. They're number two in offensive efficiency. They were number one before Michigan absolutely shut them down. But I think that's a trend that you're going to see. Uh, Cause playing the big 10, Luca Garza, he's their best player. A lot of people think he's the best player in the nation. That's just not true, but he he's the best. He's the best scorer in the nation. And they, they suck on defense. Uh, they're, they're ranked 79th in adjusted defense. And I think they're honestly worse than that because at one point they were ranked like 110th in defense. And then they had a stretch where they played Rutgers, Michigan state before Michigan state got good, uh, Wisconsin and Penn state. And all those offenses are very inconsistent and their defense played well in those weeks. And they're a much better defensive team with CJ Frederick who had missed a couple of games, especially during that stretch where they lost four or five, they're not a team that's going to lose four or five, but I think some people are treating them like they can win the national title. I don't think that's true. I think that they could very easily get picked off in the tournament. Uh, it just takes a team being able to make shots 
and uh, because they they just don't play any defense. But their offense is capable of beating any team in the country. But the way that they've been playing over the past month, it points me to thinking that they could be a team that like loses in the Sweet 16 when a team has a couple of days to prepare for them. Then all of a sudden they, they come up with a good defensive game plan. If a team is a good big man, they're very prone to losing because Iowa, they've lost to a team like Illinois because Kofi Coburn shut down. Uh, Luka Garza, we saw Hunter Dickinson lock up Luka Garza. He wasn't able to do anything. Indiana beat him twice. Trace Jackson Davis, who I think is absolutely incredible, is just being wasted at Indiana. He locked him down twice. So if you if you put up a good big man performance, I think that you can beat them. Like if Iowa gets matched up against GCU, and I forget his name, but they have a seven-foot center. Like that could be a legitimate problem in the first round if Iowa gets matched up against GCU. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I I I can see that because I think I watched an early season Iowa UNC that early season Iowa UNC game and UNC has like a plethora of, of big men. They can just throw at people and Garza wasn't very efficient in that game. Um, and that's pretty telling in terms of not just his uh, national player of the year standing, um, even though it, it looks like he's just going to win it anyway, but in terms of, you know, if they go up against the wrong team, heck even in, in round two, because I mean, I, I doubt some of the, one of these mid-majors teams have, have the bigs necessarily to match up against him um, because it seems like every mismatch he goes up against, he's just going to kill the opposition because he's, he, again, he's still really good. Um, but say they run to a second round opponent could get, could get dicey, right. With the gate with the right game plan. And um, yeah, it, it really comes stopping. This team really comes down to stopping Luka Garza. If you, if you, if you wanted like a real chance. Um, yeah, and they have other good players. Yeah, like, yeah. CJ Frederick, like I mentioned, Jordan Bohannon is a really good shooter. He's been not as great as of late, but they're a talented team, and they were able to beat UNC because they just they got the ball in the Garza, the big men crashed, and they just checked it out. And Joe Wieskamp has been really good for them lately. So, like I said, they're a good team. They're a really good team, actually, but some people think they're going to be like a Final Four team. I don't see that at all. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and, and like you said, they're not very good defensively, and uh, it is kind of hilarious to watch them play. Just, just four guys in the perimeter. There's not a lot of, not a ton of off-ball movement. It's just catch the ball, shoot the three. You know, it, it's yeah, it's kind of like it's it's a little rocketsy, but instead of it being the point guard dribbling up like Harden dribbling up um, on top of the key, it's just kind of either Garza in the post or, or something around around the lines of that so uh what's your what's your next team so my fourth team is going to be virginia tech and that's gonna displease my dad because that's the school he went to but this team has been in the top 25 for a very long time they just lost to georgia tech i mean they were coming off a covid pause of 17 days so obviously it's tough to criticize them there but even before that i haven't had them in my top 25 for a very long time uh been three weeks and they'd still been ranked like 16th. I just didn't see it. Yeah, they got ranked highly because they beat UVA. And as I just mentioned, that that win just keeps looking worse and worse. But they have some really bad losses. They lost to Penn State by 20 at home. They lost to Syracuse by 18, who's definitely on the outside of things. And they lost to Pitt by 11. Like they're, they, they put up some good games against some of the bad teams in the ACC. 
Like they beat Wake Forest by four. Congrats. Like they, they, they just have some really weird wins. I don't think they're that good of a team. They beat Villanova early on and people are holding on to that. It went into overtime. That was a weird game for Villanova because Villanova played Arizona State and I think it was Boston College to start the season. Yeah. And then and then they just kind of got tripped up because they they scheduled a game against Virginia Tech out in Bubbleville. And Virginia Tech just came out and they, they forced overtime. And Virginia Tech just made shots in overtime. So I think Virginia Tech is a bit of an overrated team. Uh, that's a good thing to keep in mind for people's brackets, by the way. And the net doesn't really like them either. I'm looking at the, their net score right now is 51st. Ooh. Yeah, and that, that's Ken Palm has them 53. So. Yeah, it's they don't love this team. Uh, the fact that they're, they're, they should not be a top 25 team after this week. And we'll see how they look against Wake Forest uh, this weekend. I was going to, I was going to maybe ask you about Virginia tech because I haven't seen that team play once all season. So I had no idea about like kind of their status, you know, because, you know, there's only so much you can read. So Um, yeah, those are your four overrated teams. What are four, who are four teams that you look at and you're like, we got to give the, we got to give these, this team some more street cred at the moment. Uh, I'll start with UConn. I think this is an incredible team. And especially UConn with James Booknight. I think James Booknight is one of the best players in the country. He's been hurt. He got banged up. And then when he got banged up, they dropped some games that they definitely shouldn't have. And because of that, it's really hurting their tournament resume. They're currently a bubble team. But now that James Booknight is back, I think they'll have no problem making it into the NCAA tournament. Their next three games are against Marquette at Seton Hall and Georgetown. If they can find a way to beat Seton Hall, who I think is a very solid team, that could certainly help them out. But this team, when James Booknight is healthy, their only two losses are to, are at Villanova and in overtime against Creighton, and Creighton's a fantastic team. So they're just a really solid team, and with Booknight, they're even better. I think that their length can pose a lot of problems in the NCAA tournament. They're the best offensive rebounding team in the Big East, and when you pair that with a guard that just loves to get to the hoop and then teams are going to crash on him to defend him. It's just going to create a large problem for teams. They don't shoot the three ball too well. And that obviously is a point of concern because you got to make three pointers to win games, in the NCAA tournament, but they're a, uh, they're a fun team to watch for sure. They, they do run a slow offense though. Hmm. Yeah. The fighting Dan Hurley's. Yes. You know? uh-huh. uh, it's, it's it's interesting to see you know Bobby's six Bobby's brother is just you know just having a much better 2020 2021 than Bobby is, uh, yeah it, it's it's kind of fun to see UConn kind of I wouldn't say come back fully but be relevant again. Is of the last I mean since they won the since they won the national championship game with uh, shoot which has Napier really they've been that program's really just taken like a total backseat um yeah but but again it's really nice to see them um it's kind of a little bit kind of in the spotlight again uh but it's good to hear it sounds like they're definitely gonna be tournament team from what i read it looked like they were kind of like on the outside looking in a little bit but uh their net score is pretty good it's 41st and uh lenardi has them in the last has his last four in at the moment so um sounds like they should probably be higher than that uh, who's your next team? Uh, I'll talk about Oklahoma. Obviously, they did lose to Kansas State this week, and that is a really bad blemish 
on their really strong resume. Ken Palm doesn't like him. He has him at 31st. But that's just because they win really close games. But you look at their losses outside of that. They lost early in the year to Xavier when Xavier was just dominating teams and finding ways to beat anyone. Uh, Texas Tech by two. They lost to Baylor. Obviously, Baylor's really good. They lost at Kansas by four. And they lost at Texas Tech without their best player by five. And then obviously the Kansas State game, which is a really bad loss. So I, I think the resume speaks for itself. They have more quality wins than just about anyone can say. A win against West Virginia, a win against Kansas, at Texas, Alabama, West Virginia on the road. Like not a lot of teams can say they have those wins except for Baylor and Michigan. They're they're just such an impressive team in like I said, Austin Reeves, he's just a walking bucket. He certainly doesn't look like it, but he is. And Davion Harmon is a really good compliment to him as a guard. And then Brady Manick, he's still getting his footing, but he's been their best player over the past couple of years, and I'd expect him to get into full form before the tournament comes around. So I, I think Oklahoma is a bit of an underrated team. They're, they're seeded correctly, but I think a lot of people are overlooking them, and they probably will with that Kansas State loss. They only have two more games left in the regular – or they have three more games left in the regular season – they play Oklahoma State twice, and Oklahoma State, as everyone knows, is a very good team this year with Kate Cunningham, and they play Texas, Red River Rivalry. Huh. Wow. Um, I will say, when I saw, when I was, like, looking at the rankings over whatever the last few weeks, um, and I'm seeing Oklahoma just sort of, it's like, slowly sneak up the rankings, and I'm like, oh, my God, Oklahoma's this good? And the preseason, it didn't really see, you didn't really see that at all. And now all of a sudden, what, they're at least probably easily a top 10 team. Uh, what's your next team then? Talk about Oregon. They obviously had a really bad loss to USC earlier this week. But in case if the listeners haven't picked up on, everyone's losing games and it's just really hard to judge. But Oregon had been absolutely trending in the right direction prior to that game against USC. And then they went on the road and beat a bubble team in Stanford who just needs every win. They're going to miss the tournament, but they're a fantastic team. They've won five straight after losing – three of their last four and just dominated some teams. They beat Washington. They went on the road and crushed ASU, who is, we know has been super disappointing, but has been playing much better basketball as of late. They beat Arizona. They beat Colorado, who's a really good team. And then they beat Utah, who's a good team. And I trust Dana Altman because he's one of the best coaches in the country. He's led his teams on several tournament runs, including that run to the final four with, they just got a rebound against UNC, who, who knows what they would have done. They're just a really good team. And Chris Duarte has really turned into that dominant force. And I think that this team could pose some problems in March because they're going to be grossly underseeded for a 15 and five team. They've had two COVID pauses so far on the year. That's really messed with their timing a couple of times. And I think that's part of the reason why they're going to be underseeded. And if they can stay healthy and head strong into the tournament, they're going to be an eight, nine, 10 seed that could definitely pose some problems to higher seeds. Mm. What do you think it's Oregon's strength? Uh, Chris, Chris Duarte. I mean, he's, he's just like their go-to scorer and it's really their depth in the, they're very well coached. Like I mentioned by Dana Altman. So that's what I have to say about Oregon. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, they're always around, right. And Dana Altman's a heck of a coach. And I guess even without Peyton Pritchard, they've, you know, find a way to, they found a way to sort of, um, fill in his role on the team. Um, is that four or do I, or do you have one more in the underrated category? 
I have one more, and it's kind of like two teams. Uh, it's San Diego State and Loyola Chicago. Uh, these two teams are very strong defensively, and they're they're underranked in terms of the AP poll. Like they're both just really good teams, both really well coached teams. So I just wanted to give a shout out to both those teams without diving too deep into those. Loyola Chicago is going to be really underseeded. They're they're currently ranked ninth in Ken Palm, and they're not the ninth best team in the country. Like that's a team where I'm like, okay, settle down, Kenneth. Uh, but uh, they're they're going to be like. Right. They're, they're in a similar spot as Oregon where they're going to be anywhere from that eight to 11 seed range. They're going to pose some problems for those top three seeds. Interesting. They're back. They're back, baby back and better than ever yeah. before. Loyal well, Chicago there. This team is significantly better than the team that went to the final four. And I've said this on the college basketball bonanza that Loyal Chicago had like the easiest path to a final four of like any team in the, in NCAA history, they faced a very overrated Miami team, a very overrated Tennessee team that won a very weak SDC. They faced seven seed Nevada in the Sweet 16. They beat the Must Bus. You got to give them some credit for beating the Must Bus. And then they faced nine seeded Kent's, uh, Kansas State in yeah. the Elite Eight. It was like, okay, like, and they were winning at halftime against Michigan. Like, they were a good team, but uh, this team's definitely better. Huh. Yeah, I, I, I remember that run vividly. I, I did pick them over Miami. I remember that. I'm like, oh, this Miami team's pretty overrated. What are we doing here? And then they roll over Miami. And then, like you said, they keep on moving on. They beat the must bus at one point. Um, that was a pretty fun must. That was a pretty fun Nevada team from my memory. And yeah. uh, they got all the way to the final four. It was it was an, it was a pretty easy run when you look back at it. I remember that Elite Eight game between them and Kansas State. And it was they smoked them. Yeah, and it was just like that was one of the like the lamest Elite Eight games I've ever seen in my life because these were two teams that I mean kind of got lucky in terms of getting there. But he's like Kansas State was on this was the same side of the bracket as the Virginia bracket. Remember that when Virginia yeah, no, was the one seed Kansas, lost. Yeah, Kansas State, I forget who they faced as the eight seed. It doesn't really matter. Those games never matter in terms of brackets just because they almost always lose to the one seeds, but they faced uh they faced UMBC. And they faced five-seeded Kentucky, and Kentucky just completely overlooked them. And then they got smacked by Loyola Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty simple. And, that, I mean, that was kind of an overrated Kansas State team because, I don't know, the tournament doesn't always – sometimes you get lucky and it doesn't always, like, reflect how good your team was actually, you know, and that's just a really good example of it. Um, so who are your last four teams into the tournament as things stand right now? So I selected four bubble teams. Uh, Seton Hall, I think that they're a really good team. Uh, I think they're the fourth best team in the Big East. They were the third best team in Alec James Book, and I just come back for UConn. UConn is better than them. And I think that'll probably show next week. Colorado State, I think they're a really good team from the Mountain West. They don't have any bad losses on the resume. The four losses are to St. Mary's in a game where they scored 33 points back in December. They're, they're, they're just not that team anymore they lost to san diego state once boise state once and utah state once and those are the three other really good teams in the mountain west they've just been able to split those and beat the other teams in the mountain west in in a year where the mountain west has been the best it's been in a very long time i think you should definitely reward a team that has been able to beat the other top teams and then has avoided losses to every other team now they got a really weird schedule where they had a bunch of cancellations so they still have to face Nevada once, and Nevada is definitely the fifth best team in the conference. They're going on the road 
for that game. So that's definitely a game where they can get tripped up. But their next three games are against Air Force twice. They suck. And then New Mexico once, and they are just absolutely awful. So the, they should certainly win their next three games. And then if they can beat Nevada, they'll probably be the two seed entering the Mountain West Conference Championship. And then if they can just get to the semis, I think they should be in. Duke, I think Duke – here, I, Duke's been a roller coaster for me because I said after – I forget who they beat, but oh, they, they smashed Clemson. And this was when Clemson was, like, looking good. And what happened was I said, I'm like, this is a tournament team. I'm like, I'm all on board. And then they lost to Miami, and I'm like, well, geez, guys, thanks. And then they lost to UNC – and they lost to Notre Dame, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, like, w- what is wrong with this team? And then Jalen Johnson opts out, and then they crush NC State, and then they just go on a huge tear, and now all of a sudden they look like a tournament team again. So I, I can't get a really good read on Duke, but they if they continue to play like this, they should 100% be in the tournament. And then Indiana, and listen, Indiana, they should fire Archie Miller no matter what happens at the end of the season because they have way too much talent to be on a – the bubble and be at 12 and 11, but they just have too many quality wins. I feel like to leave them out of the tournament. Uh, they've beat Iowa twice. They they've gone on the road and beat some good big 10 teams, but I just think that this team is too good. It has too many talented players and it would be a crime that trace Jackson Davis is not in the tournament, but the bubble is really weak this year. So I threw Indiana in on there, but there there's a lot of weird teams that are on the bubble, like Minnesota, the big 10 team they don't have a single win outside of the barn all year and i don't know if ohio state's gonna remain the number one seed but if they do and minnesota doesn't win either their two road games they're one of them's at nebraska and nebraska is terrible so they should win that game but if they don't win either those two road games or win their opener in the big 10 tournament they'll either be the first team ever to not win a home game to not win a game outside of their home stadium and make the tournament or the first team to beat two number one seeds. That's if Ohio State remains number one seed and miss the tournament. So they're just a really funky team. Uh, like I mentioned, Stanford, I, they're trending in the wrong direction. They have too many bad losses in the Pac-12 for me to put in. There's a bunch of A-10 teams that are good, and they they should be tournament teams, but they've lost to some really bad teams in the A-10, and it's just, it would be hard to say they should be in. And there's a couple other teams down there on the bubble – and it's weird. So I, I don't really know what to make of the bubble, but I think that Seen Hall, Carlos, St. Duke should definitely be in. Does Michigan State have a chance? Uh, I mean, like with what they've done recently, they do. But I mean, currently in the bracket matrix, they're only in one bracket. And that, that'll obviously change now. They beat Ohio State, but they have so many bad losses from earlier on in this year that. It's so hard to justify. I mean, they lost to Northwestern, which is a really bad loss because Northwestern, who finally beat Minnesota because Minnesota can't win a game outside of the barn, uh, is a really bad loss. And then they, they just have so many bad losses that it's really hard to put them in the tournament. But when you also look at a resume where you beat Indiana on the road or you beat Illinois, who was really good at the time, and you beat Ohio State, was really good at the time. You beat a Penn State team that was certainly playing well and was on the bubble, beat Rutgers. Like, they're just a really complicated team. They also beat Duke, which at Cameron, which certainly helps their resume, especially with how Duke's playing. But Michigan State, 
if they can find a way to get into the tournament, they are such a dangerous team because they are a team that came in with sky high expectations this year, immediately didn't meet them or did in non-con and then immediately in conference play just sucked. Like they, they were at one point in conference two and seven. And then now, now they're getting up there. They're 13 and nine and in conference play, they're seven and nine. If they can find a way to get over 500 or even at 500 uh, to end the year, that, that, that would give them a chance. Hmm. Yeah. The Michigan state thing kind of fascinates me as does, does. Ole Miss and Georgia Tech. The one thing I didn't expect to, to see this year was to see Georgia Tech even have a chance of making the NCAA tournament. So I'm like, oh, wow, Georgia Tech. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Well, Georgia Tech was the – I think they were the fifth of the sixth best team in the ACC last year, but no one really realized it because there was no March Madness. They weren't going to make the tournament last year, but – And the ACC they're, they're, was weak last year. It was really weak in my memory. And it's even weaker this year. Like it's a really bad conference this year. No one's giving it the, no one's saying that because it's been so good in previous years, but with a weaker Duke team, a weaker UNC team, uh, Virginia's certainly been slumping in Miami who had always been a tournament team. They're terrible this year. They're certainly a team that has flown under the radar for Georgia tech, just because they, they haven't been as good. Maldonado, he is a really fun player to watch. He's super fast, super quick. Misses a lot of shots, but really fun on defense too. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's a pretty good breakdown of the bracket. Um, and really all of college basketball, at least for now. Um, I, I do want to get into uh, just for the show. I, I do want to get into uh, more of the nitty gritty details with maybe even all of these teams and like a kind of like a four parter. Um, when we get even closer to tournament time, we still have what, like two weeks left ish. Yeah. Two and a half two, weeks, two weeks from, or is it two weeks? Yeah. Two weeks from Sunday. Really? Oh, wow. Two weeks from Sunday. Um, because I, I, again, I love the tournament. It's one of my favorite things every year to fill up my one bracket and, and see what I, 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 before we move on to any like Padres talk, like what's, what was your best year for the bracket in terms of, like the final four, like, did you pick a, like what year did you pick the winner? Like all that, all that good stuff. I honestly can't tell you the last time I picked the winner correctly. I should have had Villanova. I should have had Villanova the year that they won in my junior year. I forget like the years of 2018. I should have had Villanova, but I didn't, I forget why, but I should have uh, in 2016. I had a really good bracket. Like this was an insane bracket. I got like almost all the big upsets, right in the first round. Uh, and then I got almost all of the, like the second round upsets. And I was, I was winning my pool at my school of like 300 people and Kansas was up by eight in the elite eight against Villanova, who of course went on to win the championship. And I had Kansas as my champion. I'm sitting there like, if, if they win this game, I'm, I'm like, I've got easy path to like the $250 prize pool. And then a Ryan Archidiacono and, the, the guys of Villanova just stormed back. And obviously I'm not going to act like I was more devastated than the Kansas fans were, but I saw my dream dissipate right there. <laughs> and I got two of the other final four teams right that year with, I believe UNC and Oklahoma. And then uh, I ended up finishing second because UNC lost in the championship and only one of the guy, the guy that finished in first, obviously at Nova winning it all but I would have finished in fourth and I would have gotten nothing. 
uh, had UNC won that game. And Marcus Page hit that miraculous, just back-to-back three-point shots. Mm. That team was really fun to watch. And it, it, was, it was a really good bracket that year. The fact that I finished in second with my champion losing in the Elite Eight, I think, speaks to that. And then my – was it my – senior was it my sophomore year or my junior year where Oregon made the final four and I had them beating Kansas in the elite eight and I was the only person in our entire pool of like 70 people to have Oregon going to the final four so all those points that nobody else got uh I got and that jumped me in the third but that's that's about it and I mean like I haven't like followed college basketball closely until I got into high school. So that's about it. And then my bracket last year got busted pretty easily. And then I had Michigan state, Arizona in my final that one year where Arizona lost to Buffalo and then Michigan state lost to, uh, they lost to Syracuse and that Syracuse team just sucked. And if Arizona state just beat them in, in the first four, that wouldn't have happened. So it was my sophomore year. I had Oregon going to the final four. And then my junior year, my bracket was my final got screwed immediately. And then, and then my senior year in high school, which was the last year, the uh, my bracket was was okay. I had Gonzaga winning it all, and then they lost to Texas Tech, and I had Tennessee losing the final, and they lost that really weird game to Purdue. So the, that that's my bracket history. Hoping that I can do better this year. <laughs> that was really in depth. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, there's one year I had Villanova and Michigan in the final and that actually what, that's actually what happened. Then I picked Michigan to win and they actually won. That was the best year I ever had by far. Um, every other year, it's just like, hopefully I'll get one of the final four or something like that. Um, I don't know. I've had something, some years I had like this really weird tendency of picking too many upsets and like over overthinking it all. So I don't know. It, it's just a blast to do every single year. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of want to transition over to some Padres stuff because this is I, – I don't know if I've said this. I might have said this on, on the podcast I did with Josh and when we talked about some, like, the big free agency moves. This is, to me, like, probably the most relevant the Padres have been as an organization since 2000. Um, just – Really, only really not just the playoff um, appearance, but all the moves they've made over the last two plus seasons, starting with Eric Cosmer, um, all the way down, and just the amount of money they've invested in that team, the amount of talent that they've that they've now like seems like they've, I mean, never know. It's they may make they may make another trade, just given how just how unbelievable AJ Preller is. <laughs> um, but I, I just kind of wanted to talk to you about how crazy the last two years have been since uh, knowing your Padres fandom and in your knowledge of the team in a, in a very micro sense. I, I kind of want to talk about this a little more of a macro conversation. Yeah. I mean, it was a week ago that we were celebrating the second anniversary of Manny Machado day to those who celebrate uh, I, I certainly am one who celebrates and I mean like before Manny Machado signed like there wasn't much hope like going into the 2019 season the Dodgers were the Dodgers uh, and the Rockies had been a playoff team for the past couple of years the Arizona Diamondbacks have been a playoff team for the past couple of years 
And the Giants were still the Giants. They still that talented team. And then Manny Machado signed. And the Padres fans were like, okay, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr., you should come up at some point this year. Uh, some of the prospects that the Padres had been drafting in the Preller era, because Preller's been so good at drafting and so good at international signing. These guys are finally starting to come up. And then Manny Machado signs. And then Padres fans are like, okay, you know, we, we might have something here. And the first month of the season was awesome. The Padres, they are, at one point, they were in first place in that All-West. And it was a really fun start. And then all of a sudden, the Padres are playing in Washington. They won the first two games against Steven Strasburg and Max Scherzer. And Padres are like, yo, we, we like could be something here. And the Padres are up 6 nothing after the top of the third inning. We're like, okay, we, we got another win. And then the Nationals score four runs and then they score two in the next inning. And then the Padres didn't score another run the rest of the game. And then the 10th inning, the Nationals have a guy on first on first and they bunt. And then Matt Wilson throws the ball to second base and Fernando Tatis Jr. Stretches to try and get the guy out. Foot comes off the back. It goes in the splits. And I forget what the injury was. It was something in his groin, but he missed a month and a half. And after that, the Padres sucked. And then it was one night in June where me and my friends, like we'd scheduled this for like a month. We were going to go to this Padres game because like it's senior year, like we had nothing going on. Like we're going to go to this game. And it happened to be the game that Fernando Tatis Jr. returned. And that game was electric. It was one of the most fun games I've ever had at a Padres game. <clears throat> and the Padres started to trend upwards. And at the All-Star break, the Padres were 500. They were 42 and 40 at one point and then it just fell apart and then Fernando Tatis Jr. got hurt and the Potters ended up finishing last place in the division in 2019 and I I tend to be cautiously optimistic about the Potters because this team has done nothing but hurt me uh, going into the 2020 season and I, I Potters fans are like we're gonna be a playoff team in 2020 and this is like during spring training and I'm like I would just be careful about that. Like, cause this is before expanded playoffs before the 60 game season before the pandemic. And then the Potters were playing really well in spring training. At one point they, they were like 15 and two. And I'm like, okay, like, you know, this team has, has potential here. And part of the reason the Potters were doing really good in spring training is because our backups and our minor leaguers were just so much better than everyone else because our major league roster while it was solid. It, it wasn't the best. And then the pandemic comes around and then expanded playoffs come around and I'm like, okay, the Potters should make the playoffs in an expanded playoffs. And they were in first place once again, after two weeks. And then they lost two games to the Dodgers after winning the first two. And then they got swept out here in Arizona. As soon as I come out here, the, the Potters lost uh, six games in Arizona my freshman year when I was out here. And then they lose the three games when I was out here, when they were out here. And I'm like, okay, I, I'm just totally cursed out here. And then, the Padres were 11 and 12 and they went to Texas. And I think every single baseball fan knows exactly what happened in Texas. Yeah. The San Diego Padres, the Fernando Tatis Jr. 3-0 Grand Slam. Like people forget the Padres were under 500 when that happened. Yeah. And they finished with the second best record in the National League and the third best record in all of baseball. Unfortunately, in the final two weeks, both Mike Clevenger and Nelson Lamette went down. Lamette couldn't pitch in the playoffs and the Padres made the very foolish decision of bringing in Mike Clevenger to face the Dodgers, even the Padres stood no chance in that series. And I was very on the record on my Padres podcast saying, do not bring back Mike Clevenger. Just, just, you know, throw, throw our, throw our, our prospects out there. 
and uh, see what happens. If we win, then we win, and then we'll reassess the situation. If not, then we'll look forward to next year. And then, of course, he tours UCL and is now going to miss the entire 2021 season and part of the 2022 season. So that was really disappointing. But then the Blake Snell trade happens. I was just sitting on my computer playing video games, and I happened. And I'm like, all right, you know, hey, like this, this is a move that puts us closer to the Dodgers. And then the next night, the U Darvish trade happens, and I'm like, all right, we're, we're just as good as the Dodgers. And then they bring back Turner and they sign Trevor Bauer, and I'm like, okay, we're not as good as them. But it's gonna be an ex- it's gonna be an exciting season. I've already got a couple of spring training uh, tickets. I I just can't wait. And games are in two days now. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that I kind of want to understand is. Why did all of a sudden, why did this organization all of a sudden start spending money like they were the Yankees? Um, and some people say, oh, it's San Diego. It's a big market. You'd be surprised, Koki. You've never been to San Diego. How do you know? And, I'm, and, and like they like their baseball there. You'd be surprised. And I'm like, well, if, if that was the case, then where was the money in, in the last, I don't know, how many other years of Padres baseball? How come in my lifetime, at least, since I've started watching baseball, they've never even been on my radar at all. I mean, as someone from Boston, Massachusetts, the Padres were the least relevant team. They, to, to me, they might as well have been playing on Mars. Because they're an NL team out West, not winning that much at all. And it was just like, at least we played like the Rockies in the World Series. Like the Padres were, you know, they might as well have been in AAA for all I knew. Um, they were for a while. They were. Yeah. Yeah. And it just seemed like I just couldn't trust for, for a while when they started signing Machado, it was weird because I just, it was hard for me to really trust an organization that hadn't proven that it can turn signings and signings like that into something, you know, it felt a little bit like an A-Rod situation with the Rangers. And then they'll have to like unload his contract eventually because they don't want to, because the owner doesn't want to spend money on the team because the team isn't good enough. But it's been the opposite. Now, all of a sudden, the Padres are one of the two best teams in baseball, <laughs> which is a sentence I don't think I would ever say, um, <laughs> maybe ever. So I, I'm just curious as to, like, why all of a sudden, why are they willing to, to, to eat you Darvish's contract while also paying for Hosmer, while also paying for Tatis, also in the middle of a pandemic, which is the thing that, I think is really notable in this conversation when big market teams aren't even bringing on money either. So what changed, I guess, is my question financially, especially. Well, so earlier this decade, Ron Fowler and Peter Seidler, they, they basically became co-owners by buying the team. And in 2015, they went out and they, they traded for a couple of guys and they signed James Shields. And that, that was really a sign that things were changing with ownership. Obviously that, that whole mission failed there. They, 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 tore it all down rebuilt and that's now where the potters are at now yeah i remember that and this off season uh peter seidler became the majority owner for the san diego potters and he has way more money than ron fowler and what what ron fowler did when he was the majority owner it can't be understated he changed the culture within the padres and we all thank him for that but Peter Seidler has more money and it's all about mentality because all the baseball owners, they have enough money to where if they wanted to, they could go out and spend it because the best way to generate profit in the MLB is to go out and spend and win. And in order to win, unless you're the Tampa Bay Rays, you have to go out and spend money. And that's what Seidler's figured out. He said, all right, 
Let's go out. Let's go get Manny Machado, who's one of the best players in all of baseball. Certainly, I think he's a top five talent in baseball. He hasn't performed to that talent uh, anywhere recently. Obviously, he was third in NL MVP this year, but that's just one season. And then going out and trading for guys because Padres season tickets, they're, they're at an all-time high. They've always been top 15 in attendance despite not being anywhere near top 15 in record. And partially it's because Dodgers fans and Giants fans sell out the stadium every single time they come down. And that's not going to change because those games are going to be sold out anyways, because Potters fans hate that. But the Potters have a decent sized fan base because like you mentioned, San Diegans love baseball. That's one of the best baseball towns in all of America. Mm. Uh, they're the talent that comes out of San Diego, just like for draft and college is unmatched, honestly, except for like Texas and Florida, because those are obviously similar places and so they said, you know what? The attendance will come. The viewership will come when we put a winning product on the field. Because you go watch the highlights from the 90s runs for the Padres when they are playing at Qualcomm Stadium. They're selling out Qualcomm Stadium, a 60,000-seat stadium. Like, like I mean, that obviously, it's the playoffs. Like, they're going to sell it out. But they were selling out that stadium the entire season in 98. So the Padres fans, they'll show up when, when the Padres win. Obviously, there's, there's the the closet Padre fans because the Padres suck and like you don't want to admit that you root for them. I have no problem doing that. I wear my Padres stuff all the time. I wear my Padres jersey in the off season after we sucked in 2019, and everyone's like, "Dom, why are you wearing that?" I'm like, "Cause I love this team." <laughs> and Sidler realized that hey, I I don't care that we're a small a small market. We it's baseball. If I put a winning team on the field. The fans are going to come. The money's going to come for me as well. And he's 100% right. And that's what's ultimately going to happen over the next course of hopefully the five-plus years because this team's going to be good for a long time. And you got to remember, Fernando Tatis Jr., he's only making $1 million on his new contract. It's, it's backloaded. And the the good players of the Potters acquired this offseason. Blake Snell only making $10 million. Hugh Darvish only making $18 million. So those guys, considering – how well they're going to do for the Potters this year. They're not making that much money. So the Potters were able to go out and do that. And they have young guys on the team right now that aren't making a ton of money. So it allows the Potters to pay some of their really good players. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because the way they set up the contracts, a lot of this is backloaded anyway. And I, and I guess they, but uh, like Darvish is a, is, is interesting. It was particularly inter- interesting. And it's true that they may not be paying all of his salary right now, but at the same time, like he's what, 33, 34 years old and with an injury history. And, and, and when, it, when it's pandemic time, that's the sort of contract you may want to kind of unload, you know, especially like, and and there's not a lot of in a, in a seller's market when there's just not a lot of teams that are willing to buy and kind of take that risk. I thought it was a great risk. Don't get me wrong, but it was like a move like that was just a sign of, all right, there's no other team in baseball willing to do this except for them because it, it because I, again, it's, it's, it's kind of a risk when you're bringing on a pitcher in his mid thirties with an injury history um, who just found himself after what it looked like his career was kind of over for a second there. Um, so yeah, like moves like that are interesting. And again, and again, like they're, they're, they're still paying giant deal, a 
they're still paying a giant deal for Machado and they're way overpaying Eric Cosmer and they have the Will Myers contract on their, on, on the books as well. Like it's, it's really something they have some cheap deals, like you said, but I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'd be interesting to see what their budget is exactly, but, but, but they're also, it's not just like what they're paying right now. It's also long-term, right. Especially with this Tatis contract. Now you're adding another guy who's locked in for, five, six, seven, eight, heck 13 years. So it's, I, I, I got to give them credit, man. Like I, I never thought in a million years, the Padres would ever be spenders and have multiple right. 200 plus million dollar contracts. It never, never in a million years would I ever think that would happen. No. And a part of the reason why they feel like they can go out and spend is because they're going to have guys that are going to be young and up and coming because the farm system, contrary to popular belief is still really good. They've it is guys, great. Yeah, they have two guys in the top ten of just about any prospect place you'll look at with Mackenzie Gore and C.J. Abrams. C.J. Abrams is a name that's not talked enough on the national level for prospects. And I think it's just because he was drafted in 2019 and then tore it up in rookie ball, and then 2020 there are no minor league games. But he he's flying up uh, prospect rankings. And then guys like Ryan Weathers, they make their MLB debut in the playoffs against the Dodgers, and it gets four outs without allowing any runs guys like that are still really talented for the farm system. Now it's certainly it's lost its depth, but like I mentioned, the AJ Preller has done such an incredible job drafting in the money that they weren't spending on the major league team in those years, they were spending internationally for prospects. And those guys are just super talented. Like they spent $11 million on Adrian Marajon, who's going to be a very important piece of the Padres uh, he started game three against the Dodgers and he didn't do all that great, but that's not part of the story because he just wasn't ready to start a major league playoff game. So it it's going to be a fun time and they, they've been put into a flexible position where they can spend on guys for the next two to three years to help the team win right now. And then the prospects are going to come in and hopefully fill in for them. Yeah. Yeah. But again, young guys get expensive and that's part of the key with the Tatis deals that they were able to sign him up before they have to deal with any of the arbitration crap or the free agency crap. And that was, that's why it was such a team friendly deal. That's why I loved it. Well, I love that deal a lot for the, I love that deal for them quite a bit. And it's not just like the aggressive signings and even the most aggressive recent trades. It's, when they first started building this up and they were starting to do deals like the Trent Grisham deal, because I remember when I saw the Trent Grisham deal, I'm like, this is awful. What are they doing? They're, they're trading a, a, a young second base prospect who has some promise, despite the fact they had a really poor rookie season for a fourth outfielder. It just didn't really make much sense to me. And it just felt like Preller was being overly aggressive given the fact that this team had given the fact that it just did not seem like this team was anywhere close to being ready yet as a playoff contender that and like the pro far trade and just a lot of deals that I looked at and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And yeah, heck it's most it's worked out. Like I'd rather have Grisham right now than Urias. Um, I'd rather have, I mean, pro far was actually pretty solid last season. So it, it's, 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 I, I, to me, it's just amazing what's been going on in San Diego the last two or three years. Yeah, the moves that get all the credit are the trade for Fernando Tatis Jr., which will go down as the worst trade in MLB history for the White Sox point of view. And of course, they have Tim Anderson, so they're fine. But 
Fernando Tatis Jr. is Fernando <laughs> Tatis Jr. And then they could have Tim Anderson playing second base, who is not good defensively at shortstop, and that would make their team a lot better. And then the Manny Machado signing, they get all the moves, but like they get all the credit. But like you said, the Trent Grisham trade, it was also Zach Davies too in that trade. And Zach Davies then got flipped as part of the U Darvish deal so that yeah. they could still have an arm for Chicago. It's a shame that Ponder fans never got to see Zach Davies pitch in a Ponder's uniform in person because he was really good last year. Yeah. And he was Surprising a big part right. of Because the starting pitching staff for the Padres was really good last year. And then obviously the two top arms ended up going down prior to the postseason. And then Zach Davies was really bad in his two postseason starts just because he doesn't miss a ton of bats just because he only throws 90 miles an hour with a really good changeup. And then when you face good playoff teams like the Cardinals and the Dodgers, they were able to hit them hard. And it's just a really fascinating moves like that. And then getting Jake Cronenworth as a part of the Tommy Pham trade was oh, huge. Yeah. He filled in for Eric Cosmer at first base, but everyone's like, oh, what, what's going to go on? And then he like, like oh, let's throw it in Cronenworth at first base. And everyone's like, what are we doing? This guy's a second baseman. And he's making all these like diving plays against the Dodgers. And he gets a home run off uh, Dustin May. And everyone's like, yo, this guy's like really good. And then uh, he ended up falling off a little bit more towards the end of the season. But was really good in the playoffs against the Cardinals and the Dodgers. So it, it's been the small moves that teams like the Dodgers have done really well that make them the championship caliber team. And we'll see if they have any more small moves in them. They signed Brian O'Grady, who has been referred to as Walmart Jock Peterson <laughs> to a minor league, to a major league contract. And he's expected to be the Padres fourth outfielder this year. He had a home run in like the, the backfield scrimmages yesterday off you Darvish, which is no joke as you Darvish, I think is really good. And it's, it's, it's moves like that that help you win the championships that don't get enough credit because of the moves like the Manny Machado and the Fernando Tatis Jr. moves. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then like they just signed Hassan, Hassan Kim and they didn't even have a position for him. They're just like, Oh, let's just bring this guy in. Let's see what happens. Um, right. And as it stands right now, according to fan graphs, Profar and Kim are off the bench for this team, which is kind of, kind of disgusting in terms of their major league depth at the moment. And, and you're right. They built this team without really having to go into uh, their minor league system much, which, and the only, only way you can really do that is if you're willing to spend. I, I that's what I think, because like the only, re, the, like the able to be able to, uh, to, to keep Gore, and Abrams and Camposano and guys like that is you got to be willing to you got to be willing to, to spend extra money on on maybe some riskier major leaguers and and they've been willing to do that and they've built themselves just a heck of a team to just a really just a really really surprising degree um yeah like I don't think they're gonna beat the Dodgers this year I I just think the way that Friedman build that builds that team and how brilliant of a deal the Trevor Bauer deal was for them, just getting that like stopgap stopgap high high ceiling starting pitcher to fill out their rotation fully, to deepen their deepen their um, uh, plethora of great arms already, just make just like puts them on <laughs> maybe an even higher level than last season. So I, I'm still gonna pick them, but. Again, like it, it's there. Dodgers are a couple injuries away from the Padres all of a sudden winning the World Series. You know, it's not impossible. Like, you know, usually these teams win the championship and they make the leap at kind of these unexpected points in their 
in these teams development, you know, like look at that nationals team, like nobody would have picked them to win the world series two years ago and they went out and did it. So I don't know. It, it's it, to me, like the Padres on our trajectory, if they don't win the world series in the next three years, it would be disappointing. Um, just given the amount of, just the amount of money and resources and even like prospect depth that they've been able to, to cash, to, to cash out. Like they need to cash in with this, to, to cash in, they need to cash out with this champion, with a championship. Like, and I know they still have prospects to, to keep the, the runway pretty long, but I don't know when you, I, I, I just feel like when you, when you invest this much into the team, the win now aspect, even if you're not giving up a ton for the long term, Um, I mean, I, of course I've seen this with the Red Sox a, a bunch, um, you need to, you need to take advantage of that window, you know, because you never know when the window is going to close because sports are unpredictable, man. So I have faith. And I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm just going to predict them to win the world series. Cause I think that the second best team in baseball, I don't care if I think the Dodgers are better. Like, I feel like if they're the second best team in baseball, I can predict them to win the world series. I don't care. No, it's not crazy at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it like, it, and like I said, I, I've, I've come into every season with like, Low expectations, but this season's different for a lot of reasons. And it's going to be interesting to see because the Dodgers, they could never get it done after a full season. They did after a short season. It's not a fake ring. I'm not one of those people. Like every team had the same set of circumstances, but Clayton Kershaw, who had been really bad in the postseason after 162 game seasons, he has a really good postseason after a 60 game season. Wonder why. It's stuff like that and them getting Ooh. to face, them getting to face the Brewers in the first round and then facing the Padres without their two best starting pitchers. They, they beat the Braves and then the Rays who I thought were a really good teams. Like th- those are really good wins, but like they, they got there very easily. Baseball shifted now two years ago, more like three, like definitely three years ago, I would have said the AL was heads and shoulders above the NL. Oh, 100%. Um, it was the Dodgers and everybody else. Remember that one year, uh, 2018 the brewers made the nlcs and that wasn't an nlcs team they just didn't really didn't have any pitchers remember that team um yeah i i had them going to the nlcs before the season started because that uh, move the move for christian yelich was a really good move before christian yelich was mvp christian yelich yeah and they had a really good year in 20 that was the 2018 yeah. season they could they have, have but it, it, they just didn't have the starting pitching to, you know, win a series against a really good team. No, and, absolutely not. And they faced and that, the Rockies in the and that LA. Dodgers team wasn't great, but like you could just you just knew though, like the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Astros were all better. Like those are the three right. best teams in baseball, and they 100%. were all in the same league. <laughs> it just happened to be that they're all in the American League. But now I think it's totally shifted. Like I look at the top five teams in the league, and maybe one of them's from the AL. Yeah, it's the Yankees, and then the White Sox are six. And the Yankees, uh, the Yankees are suspect. Like we did the I, podcast. I ranked, I ranked them. Did I rank them at fourth or fifth? I had them at fourth. I had them in front of the Mets, but I I had the Braves it's, in front of the Yankees. The Yankees pitching staff is so grossly overrated. It is incredible. It's like they're relying on Corey Kluber yeah. who pitched one inning last year and like forty innings in twenty nineteen. Jamison Tyon, who's had two Tommy John surgeries. Domingo Herman, who his teammates, frankly, don't support, didn't pitch at all last year. Luis Severino, who didn't pitch last year. It's like, where are people pulling out these? this Yankees pitching staff is good? I think the Mets pitching staff is also overrated. I mean, if you want me to get in on that. I mean, DeGrom, I mean, DeGrom's really good. He's the best pitcher in baseball. Yeah. 
say anything else besides that. Cookie is really good. Uh, he's, he's old though. So we'll see how he bounces back from the 60 to 162 game. Didn't really pitch much in 2019 because of his cancer, which is really unfortunate because he's a really good pitcher. Thor, I, I don't care what anyone says about him returning in June. The dude had Tommy John surgery last March. He's not returning in DM June. He's not. That's just not possible. He's a he's a luxury for them though. Right. Yes, he's really good, but he's not going to be a really good starting pitcher in the 2021 season. Marcus Stroman didn't pitch at all in 2020. He's had some injuries. Like, and then David Peterson, he's their he's their guy. And Taiwan Walker has some injury history. Really good arm. Like the fact that people think this is the third best rotation in baseball, I think, is a big misunderstanding. They have Degrom. They have a bunch of talent, but the talent comes with a lot of question marks. So I think the New York pitching staffs are very overrated. And the Yankees bullpen has gotten significantly worse over the years. It's mm. not the 2017, 2018 bullpen that it once was. It's just not. We did the podcast on the AL East. We broke down each team pretty, pretty deep and in depth. Um, really went down on each player and it, it kind of went through, you know, the rotation, the lineup. If you look at the Yankees, it's just a lot of team. It's just a lot of dudes with a lot of injury history, you know, um, look at the it lineup. Is. It's like judge and Stanton. Like, Oh, those guys are always hurt. Um, <laughs> like why, how can I in good faith trust, trust in them? And, you know, that's a lot of these baseball. I mean, and you mentioned that the Mets have a lot of uh, injury problems with the rotation. I think I can almost apply that logic to every team. And I think the Yankees are like an extreme version of that. So why, that's why I'm probably even more pessimistic on them. But I don't know. Like, can you name a team in the league that doesn't have at least some injury problems with the rotation? And that's why depth is so important, right? Because the Dodgers. guys, well, the Dodgers are a whole different animal, but it maybe right. even, maybe the, uh, the Padres have a couple of guys. Oh, Lamette with the injury problem. Yeah. Clevenger's but Lamette. out. But Lamette could be like the fifth best pitcher on the Potters in 2020. I know, which is disgusting. Oh, um, it's insane. He is the best slider in all of baseball and a fastball that goes 98 miles an hour. Like he's gross. He should have finished in front of Jacob DeGrom for the NL signing award last year. Obviously that's just me being picky because I'm a Potters fan. That's what it was. But I mean, Chris Paddock's going to be better this year because he worked on his fastball over the off season. Joe Musgrove is really good. Like, I don't think I like realize... Musgrove a lot. He's underrated. Talk about people don't realize how good he was in September last year facing NL central teams, albeit, but like, it's still professional major leaguers. He was striking out at an extremely high rate. And then a bunch of prospects that are just disgusting. Like Marion throws 97 with four off speed pitches. Gore throws 94 with three absolutely disgusting off speed pitches. Ryan Weathers was touching 97 in the playoffs last year. Like the, the arms are so talented for the Padres and the bullpen is really good. They did lose Rosenthal and Yates and free agency, but they have so many other options that it should be fine. Mm. It's just going to be a really exciting season because the teams that can stay the healthiest are going to have a huge advantage coming from 60 games to 162 games. Cause pitching staffs are definitely going to be hit hard by injuries, uh, especially later on in the season. So if you can suffer some injuries early on in the year and get healthy when it matters, like teams like the Nationals in 2019 that just are going at an upward trajectory, that could certainly be interesting teams. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I guess I slightly disagree with the Mets, your Mets take a little bit because I think last year they got as unlucky as you could possibly be and they got and so many of their arms got hurt outside of DeGrom. 
and and to the point where they had to rely too much on the Rick Porcellos of the world. And when those right. guys were really just meant to um, fill out the very back end of the rotation. And now it seems like they've got their, they got their ducks in order and they have a little more depth with bringing Walker and they bring in Luke, your, your boy, Luke Casey. Um, oh. I don't know if he's actually your boy, but <laughs> he's from San Diego. So that's why I said it. Yeah. Um, he's the slowest pitcher I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> like, every start he had, the game went four hours. It was ridiculous. <laughs> So I, I'm optimistic on the Mets this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have them as the fifth best team in baseball. So I mean, I'm yeah. very optimistic. I just think that their their starting rotation is getting too much credit for what they're going to look like, and I think more should go towards their improved bullpen and their they're, really really good lineup. Their lineup is top five in the league, easy. Hundred percent. It's it was top five last year, and it was, <laughs> but they kept losing one run games. Yeah, yeah, they had. Lindor, James McCann too. Yeah. So what? And they makes finally get that scrub Ahmed Rosario out of their lineup, and they get Rosario out. And, I don't know. Yeah, they got they got a heck of a team. The NL is just really good, and I I think those the Braves, the Mets, the NL Central is a, a dis, kind of a disaster. But like the, the Cardinals Braves, will be good. The Cardinals will be good. I, I I looked over the roster quickly the other day. I wasn't actually as impressed as I thought I would be. Um, I don't know. It's well, a lot of it, again, a lot of it comes down to Goldschmidt and Arenado because I mean, ever since, I mean, Arenado wasn't good last year and then Goldschmidt, since he's been in St. Louis just hasn't been half the same guys he was in Arizona. So it's, it's interesting. Like they're kind of an interesting team, even though I still think they're going to win the NL central because the rest of the division is not there at all. Really. Um, I'd watch out for Dylan Carlson. I think he's a very serious mm. contender to be NL Rookie of the Year. Mm. Uh, when he first came up in 2020, he was not good. When he came up again after he got sent down and the whole COVID pause, he was absolutely incredible. And he killed the Padres in that first series. Uh, fortunately, the bullpen absolutely imploded and the Padres lineup just exploded in the last half of the series. But I think Carlson is a serious contender for NL Rookie of the Year. I'm a huge Dolan Arenado fan. I still think he's the best third baseman in baseball. And his season last year was obviously hindered by the fact that uh, there was a pandemic going on and that there were trade talks surrounding him. And there were talks that he was going to get traded before the season started during spring training. But then, of course, the pandemic happened and they shut that down. And so there, he had a mess of a situation in Colorado. And the, the Coors effect, which I could talk about for a long time, is the biggest scam in all of baseball because <laughs> – because hitting in Coors, it's obviously easier. Like, no idiot is going to deny that. But at the same time, the Coors effect is more because breaking balls break differently in Coors than they do anywhere else in baseball. Because Coors is 5,000 feet high elevation-wise. And then Chase Field is like 1,000 feet high. And that's the second highest elevated stadium in all baseball. And the breaking pitches break significantly more at every other ballpark than they do at Coors Field. So their numbers are deflated than they were nobly be on the road but they're a little bit more inflated at Coors so it balances out so the whole argument that Coors effect Coors effect uh he's not that good is total bs now I mean like he did not have a good 2020 but I think that people knock him and story off way too much because of Coors yeah I generally agree I've been an aeronaut defender um I've been a Helton I, I, I vote Helton for the hall of fame uh 
I don't actually should. vote for the Hall of Fame, but you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, you do your, your your bracket or your yeah the ballot the, the ballot. ballot and uh, Sorry, it's I was called, it's college basketball season in my mind. <laughs> you said brackets and, yeah um well it's gonna be a great baseball season I'm I'm looking for I'm looking forward to it uh the AL is pretty weak we got a kind of a weak ish Yankees team on at the top in the, in the AL and then the NL it's just it's it's kind of an arms race there's like four really really good teams and then like two or three other teams that are at least frisky in my book um i look at a team like the nationals and oh yeah like, right situation they could be good like i look at the phillies and i'm like i know last year was a disaster but when you bring in a guy like dombrowski who knows how to build contenders when you're in kind of contender mode that's a really good move and history says that's gonna work so he, they're interesting and you know, the yeah. analyst is a blast so uh yeah so that's what i got on that um yeah, Dom, thanks so much for hopping on the pod, man. This has been a blast to talk about a uh, whole bunch of college basketball stuff and then get some baseball in at the end as well, especially some talk about the, the, the good old Padres. Yes, no, this was a ton of fun. Uh, thank you for I, – I will take any opportunity I can to talk about the Padres because I love this team so much. They have not loved me back for a very long amount of my life, but they are now, and it's going to be a fun season. I can't wait to be super toxic about them to everyone else and uh, – <laughs> Because everyone's made fun of me my entire life, and I finally get to return the favor on everyone else. Were you old enough in 2006 when they made the playoffs? I was at the games in 2006. I remember oh, really? watching. I remember watching the game against the Rockies, where the Potters were up by two in the tenth inning, and then it just fell apart because Trevor Hoffman was just like the worst postseason pitcher of all time, and <laughs> uh, it was a nightmare. And then I remember in 2010 when. They traded for Miguel Tejada and Ryan Ludwig at the trade deadline and everything fell apart, losing 10 straight in September. It, it's been a nightmare, and it I finally feel like I can reap the benefits. We've waited, and now that I'm not playing baseball anymore, I can put all my focus into watching this team. Yeah, yeah, and then they finally made the playoffs this past year, which is just – stunning i don't know i can't i can't tell you how many f-bombs i dropped during the playoffs man it was (laughs) it was a very toxic amount of f-bombs my roommate not my roommates my neighbors had to be like yo is everything okay and i'm like no and then like (laughs) what's going on i'm like the padres are in a very intense playoff game like oh then they just left because they realized that there was nothing they could do Yeah, uh, it only get uh, okay from experience. It only it only gets it it only gets more intense from there. Yes, you know. Oh it, no, it only I, it only gets crazier. It only gets crazier, crazier. Well, because I knew the Padres weren't beating the Dodgers. We just had to beat the Cardinals because the Cardinals have been the only National League team to eliminate the Padres ever. Because the Padres made the playoffs five times prior to twenty twenty. They made it to the World Series twice. And the other three times they lost to the Cardinals in ninety six. 05 and 06 so they had to beat the cardinals when the potters were just so much better than them and there were three innings away from getting swept by them and it didn't happen thankfully it was an awesome two nights and then the potters fans decided to have a parade in downtown san diego during a pandemic and then the two idiots released slam diego love and it was just a nightmare (laughs) all right um I think we should probably end it there. Uh, Again, man, thanks so much for hopping on. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me.
Thank you all so much for listening to episode 18 of the Koki Chronicles podcast. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and spread the word about the show. Until next time, thanks for listening.